0: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, coming to you on the seventeenth of April, two thousand fourteen, from here in Japan. But today I'm joined on the line from my home and native land of Canada by our old f- friend Denis Roncourt, who some of you might remember from our previous conversations here on the program, and you can find them, of course, in the CorbettReport.com archives. Denis Roncourt is, of course, also available at ActivistTeacher. Is it WordPress? Uh, no, Blogspot. Blogspot. Blog? That's right. Yes, blogspot.com. Yes, uh, climateguy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're gonna have to give us all the 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 URLs. I know you have a couple of different websites, but (laughs) then it's great to have you back on the the program. The
1: website that's most relevant to today's topic is uofowatch.blogspot.com.
0: That's right. Okay. Well, obviously, you are, are, uh, were, a teacher at University of Ottawa, professor, a fully tenured professor who uh, was. Is going through a labor arbitration dispute, but today we're going to be talking about something um, that really strikes at the heart of of uh, just a, a rot that's going uh, going through Canada right now, and uh, this relates to something that is uh, is one of the black black spots I think on, on Canada's reputation, and uh, this for the viewers internationally and um, in the you know, other localities around the world right now who don't know about. Canada's unfortunate defamation laws, uh, it is definitely not a place where free speech really prevails. And uh, there are many different aspects to this, but I know you've been researching this quite carefully, and I'm going to direct people to a couple of different links that, uh, that you sent me, and I'm going to post in the show notes for this interview so people can go to them. And uh, let's start with a couple from OCLA.ca. This is the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, one talking about a position paper on Bill 83 saying the tort of defamation must be um, abolished in Ontario and also one saying public money is not for silencing critics, talking specifically about your case with the UFO watch. So why don't we start by talking uh, uh, just about the principle of defamation in Canada and how this might be differentiated from, for example, the United States or some of the other places where people might be listening to this.
1: Okay, well, James, uh, first I want to say it's a pleasure to be back on your show. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Yes, well, what you need to understand about defamation law is that it is the common law. So all the common law countries suffer from the same affliction. It is a, a set of laws that dates back to times when nobles would uh, chase people who criticized them. And uh, it, it was a part of the criminal code in, in the UK at the time. Uh, you will have heard historically of the char- the star chamber, and that is where that is where these cases were brought and so you uh, a nobleman could say, well I was defamed uh, this this person uh, published libelous materials about me and they could be sent to uh, horrible well to jail basically and so on and, and find large amounts of money just just in a very uh, very direct way. That's the origin of defamation law under the common law regime, and it has survived. Most of its uh, features, its undemocratic features and its unjust features have survived to this day. So, for example, it is the only cause of action, it's the only tort in law that presumes uh, malice on the part of the person you're complaining against. It presumes malice of defamation, it presumes falsity of what the person said, and it presumes that there has been damage of the reputation There is no need to prove damage, falsity, or malice. They're all presumed. So you are guilty until you prove yourself through some defense. And the defenses that are allowed are very constrained and very limited and defined in law through the common law. So there's only very specific defenses. If you don't fit into one of those defenses and if you cannot argue that you're entitled to that defense, you're done you're guilty. It's the only tort that's like that. It needs to be abolished for that reason alone. It's, it's, so for example, uh, you can sue someone in the common law for defamation without proving, and get a lot of money, without proving at all, presenting any evidence whatsoever that your reputation was damaged. For example, that you would have lost clients, or that people are avoiding you, or that, uh, you know, if you're a teacher, less students want to come to your classes. You don't have to provide any evidence of actual damage to your reputation. So the tort is about repairing uh, reputation. It's damages towards damage to your reputation, so money, uh, and you don't have to prove it. Uh, So the, the, the case holds. It cannot be thrown out of court, even if you haven't presented any such evidence. That's how crazy it is. And that's the state of the law in the entire common law, including the United States. And the only way that uh, you can get out of this dilemma is if government passes a law, a statute, um, giving you a particular defense or disallowing certain kinds of defamation lawsuits. For example, slap suits in certain jurisdictions are uh, uh, forbidden. I mean... The the company can still sue you, they can still put you through the process, but then through this legislation, you have a slap suit defense. So that defense basically is saying, well, this is an abusive process because the process itself is just meant to intimidate me. Uh, They're not really concerned about uh, damage to their reputation, or if they are they shouldn't be because they have the resources to, you know, do counter messaging and they have, they have what it takes. They're a corporation and therefore I shouldn't be sued that. So that's the so-called right. slaps. to be
0: clear for people out there who don't know slaps strategic lawsuit against public participation. And it, that's it, right. And who tends to bring that in, in what, for or what context? You mean which uh,
1: which jurisdictions actually bring in litigation suits, uh, li- uh, the slap suit protection, or well, I, was, you- I was saying
0: what differentiates a slap suit from other other types of defamation?
1: Well, uh, at at their base, they're the same because when you look at how defamation law is used, uh, it's always intimidation against expression. There is no doubt about that because who 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 are the ones that can sue? It's it's people with money. You, it, it can cost a million dollars to totally prosecute a defamation lawsuit. You, you know, your, your, your next door neighbor is not going to sue you in court for defamation if you insulted him across the fence and stuff like that, you know. So it is, it is, generally, uh, it, it is generally about intimidation. It's, it's generally a show of force and it's generally used by the powerful to prevent criticism of their activities and so on. That's, that's what it's about. So it's, it, but you know, it, um, legislation attempts to make um, some differentiation because publicly it looks so bad when a when a multinational corporation sues an individual. For example, the very famous case, the the so-called McLibel case that you may have heard of, where McDonald's sued this uh, poor UK man for being part of a group that was uh, critical of McDonald's for their food not being nutritious, for it being greasy, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they were sued through the courts for many, many years. And the outcome of that was that there was so much media attention on it that it ended up being... Uh, um, you know, a public relations fiasco for McDonald's. And so they've never sued anyone since. They used to routinely intimidate anyone who would be critical in this way. And now they learned the lesson that, you know, this, if, if we get a tenacious person who takes it all the way, it'll be a lot of bad uh, public relations for us and it will do much more damage than good. So they've stopped doing it. But, um, Because there was this public outcry against big corporations doing this, some jurisdictions felt the pressure to put in legislation that would try to differentiate between the the usual powerful person that sues an individual uh, and a corporation that does it in, in a way that the public would see it as outrageous, and as a result you have this slap legislation.
0: Just from what you say there, it is so on its face crazy that it goes completely counter to the most basic tenets of jurisprudence, innocent until proven guilty, that... I I mean, most people wouldn't even know how to begin parsing this, and 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 the origins of this back in the mists of time, where supposedly this made sense for affronts to the the noble character of the gentility that was uh, that was these insults were being aimed at or whatever. It's it's so bizarre and so foreign yeah. that it's 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 almost unthinkable. This is being used today. Uh, you do mention that there are some established defenses for this. I assume that that differs from from uh, locality to locality. What are some of the defenses no,
1: no. Well, it, to uh, to a small degree, differences because you know the, 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 the jurisprudence is established jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But overall, common law jurisprudence is trying to uh, you know be the same everywhere. Uh, so the so but so the main uh, the main defenses that are recognized in common law are pretty much the same everywhere and they are the first one is a justification otherwise known as the truth defense where you have to prove that it's true and you know you have to prove you have the onus so that that may not be that may not be easy and the other side is not going to help you you know so uh, that is a defense that's that's considered an absolute defense but you see a lot of the defamation suits are not against factual statements that are true or false they're typically statements of opinion or comments or you know and so they're based they may be based on some facts. So another defense is called the fair comment defense or the honest comment defense and that that means that it has to be an opinion, it has to be clearly expressed as an opinion, recognized as an opinion. It has to be an opinion based on true facts, so you have to prove the truth of the facts that you're basing the opinion on. And it has to be an opinion about something that is considered by the court to be of public interest. So it's not enough that it was in the media. The judge has to say, well, yeah, it was in the media, but it's not of public interest. They can say that. They've said that before in, in judgments. So it, it's got to be in the eyes of the court of public interest, all right? So advancing democracy somehow or something like that, you know, in, in, in the eyes of the court. That would be the defense of fair comment. There is a defense called the defense of uh privilege. It can be absolute privilege or qualified privilege. For example, anything you say in court when you're defending yourself in open court or you're attacking someone in open court, you cannot be sued for defamation for that statement. That's absolute privilege. So, whatever you want to say in court and you know that 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 in itself is abusive in the sense that you're allowed to say whatever you want in court, there's there're no bounds whatsoever. So, uh, and the problem with that is the judges should be putting bounds on on the lawyers, especially when there's an asymmetry of resources or force between the opposing parties and one of the you know the the powerful side is going on and on about what a what a lowly person this is and so on, without evidence, uh, just making argument, that should be there should be a control of the process which you do not find. in fact, one of the big problems with defamation law is the courts themselves. The courts themselves are fundamentally biased. Um, uh, uh, they basically protect powerful interests and powerful litigants that have high status. Um, and there's no question of that if you do statistical studies, if you talk to sociologists. You know, so you're, you're entering into a system that is already uh, demonstrably biased. And you're entering into that system with a tort that presumes your guilt. Uh, So you can imagine what it's like when you combine those two things. Now, earlier uh, in your question, you mentioned the United States. There are big differences. The biggest differences within the common law are between the United States and everybody else. In the U.S., there are many things in defamation law that protect freedom of expression. So from a legal perspective, the U.S. really is the place that has the greatest amount of freedom of expression. There's no doubt about that. For example, in the U.S., um, there is a first publication rule. So for example, if, if you allegedly defame someone two years ago on a blog and then, they, and then you repeat that or someone else repeats it uh, or no, you repeat it uh, and, they, and they sue you, um, well you can say I said the same thing two years ago and you didn't sue me then and that's a defense, that's allowed. so you're protected in the United States in all of the rest of the common law that is not a protection whatsoever any repetition is considered a whole new cause of action any repetition by anyone uh, within the common law um, when you are sued for defamation let's say on your blog they're entitled to sue everyone that has anything to do with that blog, the service provider, uh, the the server, uh, anyone associated with it who has facilitated it in any way is considered a publisher. So they can sue everybody, or they can target just one person, uh, whatever they want to do. Um, in the U.S. Um, there's a, uh, laws that have been passed that make it very, extremely difficult to sue someone for being critical of a public figure. That doesn't exist in the rest of the common law. Okay, so in the case of a public figure in the U.S., you have to the the if the public figure wants to sue you, they have to prove prove that you are being purely motivated by malice and so on, which is so difficult to do. And considered, I mean, the culture in the U.S. is that public, uh, you, you know, if you're in the public, you, you should expect this. You're going to get all kinds of criticisms. A lot of it won't be true and so on. So you'd have to prove that it was, that it was malicious and part of that is proving that it was totally false and so on. You, the onus would be on the public official and it would be a high onus and the culture just wouldn't put up with it. So as a result, in the U.S., you're, you're very much protected uh, when you're criticizing the, whoever that is a public figure. yeah. So there are these differences but the the overall principle that that guilt is assumed is across the common law and then when you have the fact that litigation is so demanding and uh, really puts personal pressure on you that means what you have is an instrument of intimidation that is a very powerful instrument that anyone with money can use. That's, that's what the, the law of defamation
0: is. Well, well, I think we need to look at some examples of how this is used to stop people from, from expressing opinions. And uh, I know you have some very personal examples, and I'm sure there are other examples that you've come across in your research. What, uh, what would you point to as a good case uh, study for people in, in regards to how this is used to stop people from expressing opinions in, in public?
1: Well, there are so many examples. I mean, they're all, they're all horror stories, you know. Um, it, people are put into bankruptcy. Uh, they, there are orders against them to never be critical of someone. Um, for example, I, I know of a case in Ontario where a man was ordered uh, to never criticize this, the CEO of this uh, company ever again. Uh, and um, so he went to his member of parliament to complain about how absurd this was, and through an accident, uh, it was leaked that he had met his member of parliament to complain about this, and so they sued him for having breached the order, and that is contempt of court, and he was going straight to jail. This man was going straight to jail uh, because... He had tried to talk to his member of parliament about how obscene it was that he was completely gagged by the courts in this way, you see. And uh, the only thing that got him saved from jail up to now, they're still pursuing it as far as I know, is that a big name lawyer stepped in and said, wait a minute, I need to defend this guy. And, you know, that happens a lot. You have this game where you have high status lawyers will step in to uh cases that are likely to be uh in the media uh and uh so th- that's where you get some of the pro bono work being done so at the same time that you have this huge injustice of the law itself of the common law itself you also have these cases that go all the way to the supreme court but which are just you know the tip of the iceberg the tip of the tip of the iceberg which are cases that manage to get up there and manage to get some rulings, you know, that are the exceptions that prove the rule, right? That's what they are, and these cases are virtually always about insignificant things, you know. Some misguided person uh, hands out flyers uh, critical of gay marriages, or you know, uh, that that is critical of even just being gay and that it's attacking that from uh, a naive religious perspective and, and so on. Well, that, that'll go to the Supreme Court, you know, as, as crazy as that is. And in, in the present environment in Canada, that is not a threat to anyone, I can tell you that. Um, uh, but that's the kind of case, that's the kind of superficial little examples that uh, make the, the law appear to be fair. But the great majority, if you look at the base of that iceberg, the great majority is pure intimidation. People settle out of court as soon as they can. They apologize. They pay money and they get out of there because they know it's going to be a rough ride. And if they don't get out of there, they go a certain ways into the process. They are quickly bankrupt if they had to hire a lawyer or quickly spend a lot of money if they're not bankrupt. And then they get rulings that are just shameful. And a lot of these rulings, you have to understand, are not publicly known because this is something I discovered. When you go to court, uh, the judge can write out a formal ruling or he can scribble a decision on the back of the uh, motion record, okay? And that's called an endorsement, hand-scribbled, you know, uh, you know, guilty, obvious case, whatever, or motion to motion to get some justice as part of your defending yourself dismissed, and they just scribble this, and that's an endorsement, that's an order, and it doesn't get record, re- recorded in the databases, in the legal databases. So a legal researcher will never know even the number of these endorsements, the number of cases that are dealt with in this way. Are The system for researchers is completely blind to that. Okay, I mean, that's frightening in itself. That shows you how the legal system is operating. Um, And that's not something that's generally known. When you're a law student, you're studying the the cases that are part of the big uh, legal databases. You have no idea about the practice and about how if you were in court and you saw this stuff happening, it's the majority of cases. And it's just on the whim of the judge. You know, what the judge had for breakfast that morning, uh, whether they're impressed by the status of one of the lawyers, uh, and so on. That, that's basically, from my experience, my understanding, that's how it works.
0: Well, I think what you're doing here is making a pretty convincing case that this is not just a uh, circumstantial or, or on a case-by-case basis a bad thing. This is a systemically bad thing that uh, that is being used and, and wielded. And even in the cases where the, there is some sort of victory, usually in these high-profile cases that get a lot of media attention, the victory is really pyrrhic because, again, it only serves to reinforce the entire system and, and tort of defamation in and of itself.
1: Absolutely, James. And, uh, you know, this has to be stressed that it's systemic. For example, Uh, media have to hire lawyers and they have to pass everything to the lawyers and so as a result you get very tame uh, reporting and very careful reporting and reporting that's not always easy to interpret and a lot of the stuff gets left out because of the potential threat of a lawsuit so that is always there you know that's present that's a, a structural feature of the system of reporting and if you uh, are doing independent media such as yourself, well, once you go through a lawsuit like this, your reporting is going to be different. Once you have been subjected to this kind of uh, a systemic injustice where they go after you and you lose some money and you lose a lot of sleep and it's a very stressful thing um, and it can last for years, you, you may be forced to shut your blog down if there's an order against you. Uh, and when you do report and when you do write about it, your, your thinking is going to be completely different. You're going to be putting it through a different filter. So that effect on society is massive. It's massive. It complete, that, that, that's why mainstream media is so stale, you know, and they'll only, they'll only report things uh, where they know they have backing by power. They So they can be very critical if they know that they have backing and they're willing to go to court, and you have two equal opponents battling it out in court. you know that can happen, so they'll settle differences that way. You know, the courts are different things depending on the circumstances. When you have equal corporate opponents it's a it's basically a way of settling matters by finding some compromise. That does not involve hiring thugs to go and shoot the place up. You know? it's, that's what it is for equal opponents. Uh, but as soon as the opponents are not equal opponents, then it's a whole different ballgame. It, it's not serving the same purpose. It's to crush it's the little guy. And if the two opponents are, not, are, are both, let's say, working class, such as in family law, then the courts just become a way to regulate families of working class people. It's and that's really horrible. It's a it's a family destruction machine. So the courts is, are, are act in different ways depending on who the litigants are, and um, that's important to understand as well. But overall, the courts are a major instrument of power in society. They are tied to the system of enforcement, the police. They're tied to normalizing behavior at all levels from. Children and families, all the way up to, uh, you know, small businesses and so on, and they they enforce and deal with banking regulations, the corporate world, and so on. So it, it's it's all of that. It's a major system, and defamation law is always a tool that anyone in any of these circumstances can try to use. Of course, if you're if you're a single mother and you've been defamed and as a result you can't get a job defamation law is not going to help you in any way. You know, the, the cases where it could help people because of an asymmetry of power, for example, a boss uh, spreads a rumor that a former employee is not reliable, well, you know, you're not going to be hired in that town anymore. That is slander, and that is vicious, and that has huge repercussions, but try to find a case where uh an em- a former employee has succeeded in using defamation law to his for his protection in, in that way you're not going to find one and if you are it'll be the exception that proves the rule
0: i think so i mean this is the exact uh the exact point of all of this is just look at the i mean the proof is in the pudding who actually ends up losing in these suits and who ends up paying for them um it's it's very seldom the the, the bigger person in the uh in the power disparity there um I, yes. you bring up the the question of of blogs which is i mean uh, clearly this is a law that 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 came from from a time well before there was anything remotely like electronic publication instantaneous worldwide global network that uh, that exists now which complicates things to a degree that i can't even begin to fathom um from a legal perspective including the idea of having comments on a website that you don't make yourself, but uh, you would be presumably responsible for as publisher of those comments, so to speak, right. et cetera, et cetera. And also the question of what jurisdiction the blog falls in. If you're in Canada, but you have a host a, a server in the United States and the comment comes from, I don't know, Africa. I mean, who 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 can keep track of well, this and how does that work? On
1: the, On the face of it, it may appear like the complexity would be increased. And the lawyers certainly want you to accept that notion that, oh, my God, you know, there are so many legal questions that need to be answered here, and we've got to go to the Supreme Court on each of these points in order to establish the jurisprudence and so on. But actually, I would argue that there isn't a greater degree of complexity. If you just use common sense, it's, it's quite easy and natural to answer these questions. There is not such a big difference between the present world and the not so long ago world. For example, radio talk radio shows, You ha- anyone could call, they didn't have to identify themselves and they would just say things, you know, and uh, then they put in a six or seven minute delay and stuff like that. But you had this happening all the time. Newspapers have always had letters to the editors, right? And a lot of these letters, you know, even if you verify the identity of the person, you know, you call them at the number they give and so on. It's not always the person. Uh, these letters can come in from other countries and so on. So they're, they're, I would argue virtually all of the features that are present for blogs have been present in some form previously. For example, uh, if you cite in a written work, if you cite some other work, is that equivalent to republishing the work? Obviously it's not. We haven't thought so for a long time. But if you link, if you give a URL in citing something, you don't do more than that. Is that republishing? Well, the lawyers argued that it was. And they argued it for a long time. And there, there was a battle and it, it needed to go to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to say, no, that's like citing something in a library. It's not the same as republishing. Let's be clear. Okay, well, I'm sorry, but that, did that really need to go to the Supreme Court? Did we really need to take years to establish that? And the reason you did is because judges fall for these lawyers' arguments, which is, oh, here's this totally new thing. For example, there, there's a lot of lawyers that will argue successfully because the judges will repeat it in rulings that the Internet is much more uh, damaging to a person's reputation. Because, oh, it's all over the world, anyone can see it, blah, blah, blah. Yes, but anyone can also respond. Anyone can also put a comment on the same blog. Anyone can, you know, it's easy to publish a retraction. It's easy to, all of the things that make it in one's lawyer mind dangerous uh, have a counter that, that completely fix the situation. So um, I would argue that there's much, and, and legal scholars have also pointed this out, there's, there's much less ability to defame with the Internet because everyone's going to give their opinion about everything. And so uh, an opinion is not such a precious thing anymore. It's not you know, what you read in the town newspaper. It's not the thing that everyone reads. It's, it's just there's, it's diluted uh, in a lot of things, and it's easy to respond to.
0: So, um, sorry, you're, you're just bringing to mind the idea of people filing defamation suits over YouTube comments or something, which is, I mean, <laughs>
1: it is it's so ridiculous.
0: Do. It's a ridiculous. No, no, idea. but
1: it's done all the time. You know, the, the, the blogs, comments, comments on someone else's blog. These are the lawsuits that we're seeing now, and you know, there was there, there are indications at some point that there's some. Judges that, that, that show some degree of common sense and sanity, I would say. For example, there was a case in Ontario where two bloggers were going at each other. Uh, to simplify, I'll say a right-wing blogger and a left-wing blogger, or someone with uh, right-leaning tendencies and someone with left-leaning tendencies were going at each other, and they are being quite nasty, a lot of insults flying back and forth, name-calling and so on. And one of them decided, okay, now that's gone too far. Now I'm suing you. It went to court in Ottawa as crazy as this is, but the judge accepted the argument that it should be thrown out of court because this is just two bloggers going at each other, basically. It went to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal, instead of looking at all the, you know, the the record before it said, oh, no, you can't just throw it out on that basis. It needs to go to trial. This is something that needs to be decided at trial. So they sent it back, now, presumably, it'll go to trial, then it'll end up in appeal and so on. But when you when you read the material that was presented on the court record, it's obviously two bloggers that were just going nutso at each other because they didn't agree on things and they were having a competition about what would be a better or more clever insult. You know, that's all it was. But the system didn't find it in its heart to throw it out because you have to respect the jurisprudence of defamation law which is, you know, if, if, if something has the possibility of being defamatory, then it's a cause of action and you can go to court and you can have your day in court, as insane as that is.
0: Well, well, I guess this is the real crux of the issue, because we can see that the system is fundamentally broken, systemically broken. But the question then, of course, is how do you how do you fix this system? How can it be repaired? Which, of course, puts it into a certain type of narrative and discourse that might, may be unproductive. And speaking of which, what is Bill 83 anyway, and why is the OCLA writing about it?
1: Right, right. Well, Bill 80- 83 is one of these uh, laws... That is something like uh, um, a law to prevent slap suits, although this particular one doesn't do it at all. But that was the sort of the motive or the thinking behind it at the time. Uh, so what can you do about it? If, if, we come, if I step back to the broader question, what can be done about it? I think that uh, exposing it for what it is 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 a big thing. I mean I think what we 're doing now is very important, and I think that there needs to be a movement I, I believe that there could be a political movement i don 't know where it 's going to happen first, but to abolish defamation law you don 't need defamation as a tort. There are other torts you know there's malicious falsehood is a tort where you have to prove that it was false and that it was malicious. Uh, you know, uh, conspiracy to harm is a tort. There are all these torts out there that are based on reasonable legal principles, like you can't just assume guilt. And so given that there are all these torts to prevent the, 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 the things that are related to an undue attack on reputation um, that already exist, the tort of defamation, which is, I would argue, nonsensical, should be abolished. And I think that, you know, the the, the U.S. has gone uh, a long way towards doing that. It hasn't done it yet. It's still a big problem in the U.S., but it shows that if there's a political and public desire to do this, if there's public pressure, you can achieve it. And I think that that should be a next activist goal for organizers is to abolish this tort in the jurisdiction that they're working in. And I sense that this is going to happen in Ontario. There's at least going to be a movement that's going to attempt it, you know? And I think that that's needed, and I think that civil liberties associations can contribute to that. The problem with most civil liberties associations that have a big name, that are considered to have status within the legal establishment, are um, run with the help of lawyers and lawyers contribute to them because uh, it helps their careers, it helps their image, it legitimizes the legal profession and so on. And so as a result, a lot of the um, civil liberties associations tend to be tied with the establishment and that is a very dangerous thing. some of them for example will start as very principled organizations just a few people who who see an incredible injustice and who get in there and organize and they over the long run uh they tend to be taken over by uh lawyers uh and i say that in the bad way (laughs) and so it's unfortunate that uh they're not as radical and as aggressive as they would need to be and i think they make that compromise because what gives them their status in court before a judge is the fact that they're tied to lawyers in this way, and that high-status lawyers are coming and speaking on on their behalf, if you like. So there's there there's that difficult mix, but we do need these civil liberties associations, and we do need to radicalize them, and we do need to insist that they that they um, represent civil liberties and that they protect people. So that's part of the mix, that's part of the mix that you, you, you need that. The Ontario Civil Liberties Association is relatively new and is a more radical association in the sense that it goes to the root of problems. It has not yet been um, you know, uh, sort of diluted, defanged, yeah. Defang, that's right. And as a result, uh, lawyers are afraid of it to some extent and kind of stay away from it you know which is which is the reality of it so there's it's trying to find its place uh, staying uh, fundamental and principled and going to the root of problems while still trying to uh, access uh, a high enough status to be able to effectively intervene in the courts although that's not its only Purpose Because a civil liberties association might even be more effective in the public domain, not in the courts, but in the media and and so on, and supporting groups and uh, providing legal research and that kind of thing. So that's what the Ontario civil liberties... I think it's it's a unique civil liberties association, certainly in Ontario. Another really good one historically has been the uh, BC, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Very strong, very principled, a long lineage of uh, really strong work, you know. But I have to say I'm going to be a little bit critical of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association because um, whereas it has done some good things, um, uh, it's, it's, it's become a, a bit defanged and it's not as daring as it should be. It's not defending the people that most need defending. I mean it's easy to defend someone that, that the majority of the society feels needs to be defend- defended. That's easy to do, but you need to also defend in terms of freedom of speech the people whose speech bothers the great majority of citizens. Okay, They most need to be defended, and you can't do it in a in a half-baked way. You can't say, well, I'll defend you in principle, but I really don't like you as a person. I won't shake your hand. You know, We've seen this kind of behavior from the civil liberties associations. You can't do that. You can't publicly say, I don't like this person. That's not relevant. The only thing you should be saying as, a, as a, an association protecting their rights is, um, I will defend their right to speak. You can't qualify it, which is something that recently the former head of the CCLA has said publicly in his memoirs that were talked about in the mainstream media that well, yeah, we, we, we did speak up for this, you know, this person that nobody liked, but I made it clear that I didn't like him, and I refused to shake his hand on a radio show. You know, That's just despicable. That's despicable that, that they would work behind the scenes to make it clear that they dissociate themselves from the person that in principle they have to defend. It's not relevant, so you shouldn't be doing that.
0: And you as you've ins- pointed out, I think numerous times in this interview, so much of this is, is really decided through the court of public opinion um, in a lot of ways. So I think that uh, prejudicing the, that court of public opinion in any way is, is working for or against whoever the... the
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was crystal clear in this case that is now documented in this person's memoirs, uh, which I don't need to name. Uh, but um, so, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So the, let, let's, let's be direct about this. The people who most need to be protected are the people who say things that the great majority of decent citizens would feel uncomfortable about. OK, so they, they but they're expressing an opinion and it's an unpopular opinion. And, uh, you know, it, it could be uh, bashing certain religious groups, it could be bashing certain uh, lifestyle preferences, it, it, you know, bashing in the sense of uh, you know, honestly believing and being critical of them, and believing you're doing a right, the right thing uh, in being critical in that way, and trying to do it as strongly as you can, the, this is the kind of speech that needs to be protected because we as a society need to know that these opinions are out there and we d- we need to know the strongest form of those opinions and we need to be able to debate, we need to be able to counter the opinion with, with, with information and data, we need to be able to argue that this person is biased for whatever personal reasons or whatever, you know, because of their history. We, need, we, we, we should be entitled to make all those arguments and and to make it publicly. And in order to, if, we're, if we agree that we're entitled to make those, those counter arguments, then we're also entitled to hear what those arguments are. And uh, that is the principle. And instead, what you find is that uh, the courts and civil society tend to be an exercise in social mobbing. There's no doubt. It's, a, it's an exercise in social mobbing. Uh, you know, you, you, it's distasteful, and it's considered now. You know, the the left in Canada used to be strongly in favor of freedom of expression, and now you hear a lot of left leaning persons who will argue that no, it's okay to stop that speech, to prevent them from public speaking, to pass laws that would outlaw this. It's okay to do that, and so now it the balance has flipped, and it's now the right leaning persons. That are fighting for freedom of expression, and I think that that what that reflects is that formally, let's say thirty or more years ago, it was the left that was that needed freedom of expression, because it was the left that wanted to have you know naked bicycle rides in the city of Vancouver uh, as a as a lifestyle protest or whatever you know, or as part of a protest to attract attention and they were being put in jail for this reason so you know that is part of the beginning of the BCCLA and 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 it was the left that needed those protections nowadays the the right wings uh criticisms is being socially mobbed and it is the right that needs protection so they're they're becoming a really strong voice for uh, freedom of expression although uh, to, to be fair, they always have been. I mean, I think the right has its thinking on straight much more than the left in this regard in that the, it, it has been uh, a strong proponent for a long time historically, especially in the United States, of freedom of expression. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how the left has lost the very important notion that freedom of expression is fundamental. You can't just accept the expression of the people that you agree with. You know why have why is this being lost and, and why are they agreeing with governmental ways to limit expression? I, I'm really I really don't understand it. They do not understand. The people who do that don't understand that uh, power controls society and that this is all going to be used to control the individual. and uh, you know, Uh, So it's a shame.
0: It is is puzzling. It is very puzzling that uh, people somehow believe that this is going to work in their favor and they'll get to institute their laws and they can decide what's hate speech and everything else. um, Yes. It'll all work for them. It's just bizarre that people continue to persist in believing this in the face of so much evidence to the contrary. It sounds like you're making the argument that we should... Become the civil liberties associations, or infest the civil liberties associations, yes. or, or or supplant the civil liberties associations with real community-based uh, organizations, which I'm completely in favor of. But the problem is that, in order to motivate people on issues like this, especially with an issue like this uh, that's that's kind of related to the legal system, people generally do not get motivated to become involved in this unless it has affected them themselves or they've seen it, you know, firsthand. Uh, what well, do you think yes. of the general gen, the general kind of environment in Ontario regarding this issue right now?
1: Well, you you hit the nail on on its head, uh, unless they have been personally involved, right? Well it turns out that a lot of people have been mangled by the legal system. And this is especially true in the family law sector. And so a lot of people understand now that the courts are nothing, have nothing to do with justice that it's not going to be a fair process, that it's not a fair process. And and so, for example, um, the Canada Court Watch is a Facebook page that has over 4, 000, almost 4,000 members. And these people are organizing, and they protest at courthouses, and they protest in front of uh, lawyers' offices, and they routinely do this. And they are having significant political pressure. For example, uh, recently in Ontario, the Ombudsman of Ontario has been given... Um, I believe, or he or the equivalent have been given jurisdiction over uh, the Children's Aid Society, which is this institution that takes children away from families uh, for all kinds of pretexts that had no oversight. It's just destroying family relationships like you wouldn't believe, putting them at high risk in foster homes a lot of the times. So there's a lot of evidence that foster home uh, children have huge problems afterwards, and then they use this as a a pretext to take the children of former foster home uh, uh, adults away from those adults because there's evidence that foster homes (laughs) are bad for you, and so on. And so it's this system that gets funding on the basis of how many children it takes uh, that has absolutely no oversight. And, and so families are now so outraged about this that there's a political organization going on and they're having an impact. Now, Ontario is unique, right, as far as I know, in Canada and possibly in the Western world right now. Uh, possibly, I, I don't know, I haven't researched it, but there's an ombudsman that oversees government services in Ontario, the Ontario ombudsman. This guy, from some fluke, from some accident, is an incredibly principled man who is strong-willed and who, has, who is not afraid to speak publicly, who is on YouTube a lot. André Marin is his name. He's just incredible. He is the exception that proves the rule. You know, where, where all these government watchdogs are normally lapdogs, he is the complete opposite of that. And as a result, he's become so popular among the people that he protects and defends that the government has been unable to get rid of him. They wanted to review his position at one point and they had to keep him on. And now they're having to give, it, to give him more portfolios and having to acknowledge, uh, give him more power. But he's actually doing his job. Well, I think that the reason he can survive in that position is because of the public support and the public outrage that exists out there. And so it's, it's all tied together in that way. We need to... Uh, Encourage the people who are put in positions of power that could do something; that they must do it. We need to make them responsible and work with them. And this includes uh, civil liberties associations, government positions, professionals of all kinds. Uh, but there needs to be that grassroots as well. And as you say, it's the people who've been affected. Well, there are a lot. There are a lot of us now, and there are more and more of us all the time. And we're starting to realize that we can organize and that we can be rebellious and that we can be outraged about what is happening to us and that we can put that into some positive energy in a way to change things
0: well that is a hopeful note to end this rather sour conversation on so i think we will wrap this conversation up there for this point but are there any resources you'd like to direct people to on this topic
1: (sighs) Well, I, I think it'd be worth exploring the Ontario Civil Liberties Association uh, website, for sure. This is, it's a good example of a nascent organization that is that is uh, trying to use these principles and apply them, for sure. Um, if you want a detailed example of my battles, you can go and look at Um If you, huh, yeah, I, I guess that's the best way to put it.
0: Yeah. okay well if there is anything else positive that comes from this it's that uh, that I suppose going through this type of defamation lawsuit gives you a much better appreciation of the works of Franz Kafka so there you
1: go. <laughs> yeah. Oh well let me tell you a little anecdote can I tell you an, an anecdote about Kafka I once I, I recently went to see a play uh, the, well, one one of his plays. It was an adaptation, and so it was partially showing Kafka's materials. And as I was uh, listening to Kafka's words and seeing it uh, acted out, I I couldn't help thinking to to myself, "Oh my God, reality is much more fierce than what he's describing. It's it's much much worse than that, you know. I mean, I'm thinking of the secret trials that we have in Canada, the 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 way that you can deport people, the way that." refugees come into the country and they're put into essentially jail under horrendous conditions for years at a time before they get deported back and just just all of these human rights abuses that are just tremendous and that, that are illegal um, you know you can, you can go after someone for terrorism and that person will never know the evidence against them never and uh, and so
0: on so Well, then let me use this opportunity to direct people back to my own um, video presentation on the trial in which I linked it to the no-fly list, another ridiculous and draconian uh, piece of legislation that really is... um again, like so much of this is just a weapon and a tool to be used against the masses um, at the will and leisure of those in the positions of power. So that's why we think we have to break these tools and make sure that they cannot be used against the people. I am 100% on board with that. So I will put those links to some of those resources again in the show notes of this interview. And uh, Denis Roncourt, a very interesting conversation. I'm sure we'll have to have you back on to continue this conversation at some point. But thank you for your time today.
1: It was a great pleasure, James. Thank you.